Meanwhile, Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations proudly present Dime Store Radio Theater! And to help prepare you for Thanksgiving later this week, we have selected some stories that feature romance and adventure that are as timely as they are exciting and get at the true meaning of the holiday without all those cliches. Put this on as your family enjoys the big meal, and you'll be overcome with gravy and nostalgia. A simple gift from Dime Store Radio Theater to you and yours. Our first course this week, Jeff Regan, Investigator, with The Pilgrim's Progress. I get ten a day and expenses from a detective bureau run by a guy named Anthony J. Lyon. They call me the Lion's Eye. With Jack Webb as Jeff Regan, the Lion's Eye, stand by for hard-boiled action and mystery and thrilling adventure in tonight's story of the Pilgrim's Progress. Jeff Regan. Investigator is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Beginning shortly after you stop listening to this program, leave the house and start buying everything in sight. Money is tight and life is short, but this is the one time of year that you just get to buy, buy, buy without thinking. Our annual Black Friday sale... Don't check to see if you already have one. Just get it. Now. Now. We return you to Jeff Regan, Investigator, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. The Cosmopolitan Building, 7th Street near Olive, downtown L.A., a mess of granite thrown together by an architect who must have taken his degree on the rock pile at Leavenworth. It's up on the third floor, room 308, right next to a credit dentist who shares his office with a collection agency. On the other side, there's a school for models, and the lion's got sore eyes trying to see through that cloudy glass. International Detective Bureau, Anthony J. Lyon, President. He's also Vice President, Secretary, Treasurer. I work for him. Well, the office isn't much, but there's enough elbow room for a client to write a check. I went to the office Friday night, about 5.20, answering a lion's call. He was sitting behind the desk, sucking on a quarter cigar. He looked real pleased, like a fat lady locked in a cream puff factory. Man I know had a baby. Plumber named Broman or Groman or something like that. Yeah, muzzle tough. Canceling arrangements you got for the night. I got something for you to do. Got your car? It's in the lot. Gas it up. You're taking a trip. Where to? Calabasas. A man wants to see you. I got no friends out there. Friend of mine. Name's Hendricks. He counts his money with an adding machine, and his finger's always swollen. What's the problem? I don't know. He didn't say. He just called and told me to send out a man. How much did he give you for a retainer? When an important man like Hendricks calls, you don't insult him by asking for money. Oh, stop it, will you? You're the kind of guy who'd steal pennies out of parking meters. That's enough, Regan. If one of them turned up empty, you'd sue the city. Here's the Hendricks address. Now get out there. All right. Uh, Regan. Yeah? Remember, do a good job and I'll give you Thanksgiving off. And I'll pay you. 
with what? Cranberries? Well, I headed out Beverly and then up through Hollywood. You know, it's only November, but Santa Claus is breaking out all over the boulevard. I fought my way over Coenga Pass, and by the time I was dodging station wagons on Ventura, it was dark. Calabasas is a place with a couple of service stations, a hot dog stand, and a few road signs full of buckshot. The Hendricks place turned out to be about five miles down a road that the Indians built for hauling firewater. I guess they couldn't keep the cork in. But the house itself was strictly prohibition stuff. A big pile of slate roof and leaded windows. It looked dark and lonesome. I figured somebody had their holidays mixed. a big fat guy. He was holding a six-foot gun in the shape of a straightened-out tuba. He came closer and I could see his hat. It was a high one with a buckle on it. He was dressed in black and he had buckles all over him. Well, I figured that I'd been eating too much Quaker oats. What's the matter, Pilgrim? A little shooting make you nervous? That's a big gun there. Shoots musket balls. Good for Indians. <laughs> well, I'm no Indian. Oh, I wasn't aiming at you. Well, that gun wouldn't know the difference. It's a blunderbuss. Great weapon. Is it? I, I saw you. You prop it up on a crutch. You keep fooling with that thing and we'll both need one. Now, let's be quiet. Load the barrels. Lots of powders. Look, why don't you give that thing back to the museum? He does it. More powders. <laughs> Gotta use lots of this black... Buster, you need black coffee. Come on, give me that thing before it blows up in your face. You broke a window. It's all right. It was only the attic. You live here? Of course not, Pilgrim. I'm Miles Standish. Well, where's the rest of the party? All inside, talking to John Olden. Yeah, sure, sure. Oh, you just think I'm kidding, don't you? Pilgrim, you just haven't got the Mayflower spirit. No, you drank it all. It's just cider. Nothing better on a cold New England night. Thanksgiving's not for a week. Come on, get off it. Hark. What's the matter? Put that down. I'm not going to shoot him. He's a friendly type. Brother Regan? Yeah? If thou wilt follow me, please. Oh, you too, huh? I beg your pardon. Okay, okay. Well, so long, Pilgrim. Yeah, keep your powder dry, Stanley. I'll see you on Plymouth Rock. <laughs> okay, this way, Brother Regan. Now, look, Sunshine, you work here. My name is Phelps. Why don't you lock that guy up? I'd be outnumbered, sir. For 21, Pilgrim. Bad winter. They make you wear those corduroy knickers? Knee breeches, sir. It was Priscilla's idea. You need a union. I need more shapely legs. Through here. Now, that's quite a place you got. Well, it looks better without the decorations, sir. Yeah. How do you keep from stepping on these pumpkins? It's only when they use them for bowling that it's difficult. Come on, fill me in. What's this all about? Thanksgiving, sir. 1621. Okay, this room here, sir. Go right in. Okay. Shut the door. Shut it. Mr. Hendricks around? He's not here. Come over, sit down. Who are you, Priscilla? Don't, 
please don't say another word of that silly rigmarole or I'll start screaming. Yeah, well, I could use a little yell myself. I'm Agnes. I'm Mrs. Hendricks. Or Agnes. It doesn't make any difference. Does to my friends. Didn't I say sit down? Yes, you did, and I didn't. So you don't like the party, huh? I'm not much of a Puritan, Mr. Regan. Well, that great Dane says the masquerade was your idea. Oh, Phelps is stupid. This goes on all weekend, Mr. Regan. It's called a turkey shoot. Oh, so that's it. Who gets the bird? The Pilgrim Fathers. My husband's friends. They ought to be shot, every one of them. Yeah, well, I'm not from the SPCA. Oh, wait a minute, Mr. Regan. I, I like you. That's not the point. I won't bore you. Your husband might. Him? He's crazy, Mr. Regan. Crazy as the things he does. Shooting, drinking, spending money. A hard life. I don't know how I stood it for as long as I have. My lawyer says I'm the most patient woman in the world. Yeah. Well, thanks for the conversation, Miss Hendricks. Why did my husband send for you? I don't know. Yes, you do. You do know. Tell me. I don't know. Please. You don't realize what kind of a man my husband can be. I never met him. You don't know how much I need help. How lonely I am. Well, where is he? I'll tell you if you promise to come back to me. No, I'll write you a letter. <sighs> He's out in the shed, the other side of the patio. Thanks. I wouldn't act this way if I weren't so frightened. You don't know what it is to be frightened all the time. No, but I'm learning. I wish you'd stick around, Mr. Regan. Well, thanks, Mrs. Hendricks, but the pin feathers are a little sharp. <laughs> Mrs. Hendricks went back to her worrying, and I wound my way through the house looking for the back entrance. My legs got tired before it finally showed on the other side of the pantry. It poured out into a flagstone patio as big as the Palladium. A walk took me to a shed. It was a two-story redwood place that must have made a loud noise on the cash register, and alongside, fenced in with chicken wire, was a whole population of turkeys. Well, I went into the shed. There was a little round-faced guy with pink skin was leaning over a barrel of cider. He wore a blue silk smoking jacket with gold initials E.H. on the pocket. When he caught my footsteps, his head bobbed up and he gave me a deep look like he was trying to see the back of my eyeballs. Yes? I'm Regan, International Detective Bureau. Oh, I've been expecting you. I'm Hendricks. Yeah, I know. Why the fireworks? Huh? Oh, Miles Standish and his blunderbuss, eh? Oh, just having fun. It's a party, you know. Big party we're having here. Yeah, well, the neighbors will complain. <laughs> ah, neighbors. None for miles around. That's why I like it out here. Have trouble finding me? You ought to put up signs. Eh, signs? Uh, glass of cider, Regan? Carefully. Flat. I'm not thirsty. Yeah. Uh, uh, that's not what it's for. <laughs> Strong kind. Oh, go on. Thanksgiving soon. Get in the spirit. No, I can hold out till Thursday. Well, suit yourself. Excuse me. Yeah, there's going to be quite a party here, you know. Your wife's got a different version. Oh, you spoke to her? Yeah. You were told to come out here to see me? I got sidetracked. It's not good for a man in your position. All right, Hendricks, why am I here? What'd she say to you? I forgot. Regan, you're making me angry. Now, look, mister, you didn't get me out here to make a pilgrim out of me. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Fine woman, Mrs. Hendricks. We've been married for years, you know, happily. Fine, fine little woman. So she makes me a little nervous at times. Mm -hmm. you like the sound of guns going off? Ah, she shouldn't get so excited. Boys just having little fun. It's only once a year. What's wrong with that? Come on, now, what's the job? 
Oh, didn't the lion tell you? He said you would. Oh, well, <laughs> nothing to be so mysterious about. I've just got a package I want you to take to. Here it is. A turkey. You got me all the way out here to play escort to that bird? Well, I just want to be friendly. Here. Now, go on, go on, go on. It's a long way back to L.A., and you want to be there for Thanksgiving. What's the difference? I got the turkey. I can celebrate any time. Sixty miles to do a delivery job on a dead bird. Well, I wandered back to my car, and I listened to the crickets and the gunshots try to outdo each other. And then I dumped the turkey into the back seat, and I started the car down the drive. I just thrown it around the bend when the headlights caught a pair of buckled shoes and black knee breeches. Miles Standish was lying face down in the dirt and there was a wet shine on his side. He was breathing hard. Blunderbuss was lying beside him and I figured that he blew out the wrong end. I would have gone for the Hendrix phone and a doctor, but I got a good look at the holes in him and I headed for a hospital instead. The blunderbuss may have been kicking up a fuss, but the holes in Miles Standish were 20th century, about the size of a 32. turned him over to an emergency hospital and I put a call into the sheriff's office. I gave the story to a uh, Lieutenant Robinson and then I headed back toward town. At the lion's place, the lights were still on, so I figured he didn't have company. I rapped on the door and he flung it open before the echo could die away. He had a carving knife in one hand and he was wearing an apron. His eyes were big and he had an eager look like a college couple on Mulholland Drive. Regan, you're back. Oh, now that takes a big brain. I've been waiting for you. You know, I had a chance to go to a classy party tonight. Russian caviar and champagne and favors to all the guests. Know why I didn't go? You lost your crash suit, huh? I said to myself, is it fair to go out and have a good time while my employee is working real hard for international detectives? And the answer came out yes, but the party was called off. <laughs> well, as a matter of fact, it was. But I wouldn't have gone anyway. Where is it? Where's what? The package from Hendricks. Now, you can change your plans, big shot. You're getting a bundle of trouble instead. What do you mean? Turkeys aren't the only thing they're knocking off out on that ranch. Huh? Somebody's handy with a 32 and he's found a target. You've been drinking? Check the county emergency hospital. They'll show you the holes. I send you out on a simple little job and you come back with a crazy story about a shooting. You're out of your mind. Now listen, you, there's a big smell out in Calabasas. What about my turkey? The sheriff's office are going to have a lot of questions. You got the answers? I don't know anything. I was miles away. Well, then find out something. Check into the guy who shot. Find out who he is, what he does, and what he was doing out at Hendrix. Where are you going? To scratch around in the Hendrix closet. They tell different stories about their wedded bliss. Hey, Regan. Yeah? Where's my turkey? It's too rich for your blood, fatso. Stick to chicken. Well, I left him standing there with his apron hanging out. Miles Standish might get enough wind through that extra hole to say who shot him, but more likely not. Anyway, with the bucket load he had, he would have sworn it was the last of the Mohicans. But there was an angle of that Hendricks woman, even if it didn't show. So I walked up the street to where my car was nuzzling a lamppost. The turkey and I were just going to wake up a newspaper office, only something changed my mind. A newspaper. It was wrapped around a bundle, and the bundle was under a guy's arm, and the arm was shutting the door of my car. Now, good evening, Pop. Yeah. Uh, uh, hi. You going somewhere? Sure, sure, Find a place to sleep, that's all. Want a cigarette? Say, I don't mind if I do. <laughs> Thought you was a bull for a minute. You mind if I take two? No, help yourself. My brother smokes two. And not much in the streets these days. Yeah, it's bad all over. Yeah, something ought to be done. Well, no, no I... stick around, Pop. No, no, Sonny, you give me smokes. I don't hit you for cash. It's a rule I got. I'll make the touch. 
What's that? What's in the newspaper? Russia. Inside. Uh, funny paper. Yeah, sure. Well, now take it easy, boss. The guy's got a right to his privacy. You weren't sleeping in my car. Oh, so that's it, huh? Yours, huh? Small world, ain't it? Yeah, come on, let's unwrap. Uh, now, it's Thanksgiving, Mac. Ain't you heard of Thanksgiving? I'm gonna plug my ears. Give. Now, please, Mac, show me this spirit. Once in my life, both drumsticks. Now, huh? Stop it, you're breaking my I heart. I mean it, Mac. Let me have it. I'll break the wishbone for you, Sonny. I will. You ain't got no use for all that meat, have you? Oh, you have, huh? What's so long, man? Hey, wait a minute. Hold it. No, I let go of my arm. That was a pretty dance, but you should have changed your shoes. What's that? You didn't get those buckles in the bread line. Oh. Now, come on, change the record. Who are you? That's none of your business. Let go of I me. said talk. I will not. You're from the Hendricks place, aren't you? You're from the... Thank you, Phelps. That's all right. Got the bird? Sure. Let's go. Yeah. Nighty-night, Pilgrim. Jeff Regan, Investigator, is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. T-shirts, rubber hoses, alligator chow, three-ring notebooks, imported Hawaiian coffee, a DVD of Pump Up the Volume, Tube Socks, The Necronomicon, Alice's Restaurant, Number Two Pencils, A Cookbook, Sporks, Candied Pickles, You Need It, and It's All for Sale. Buy it today during our annual Black Friday sale. Now, we return you to Jeff Regan, Investigator, here on Dime Store Radio Theater. And now, back to Jeff Regan, Investigator, and the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. None of it made sense. The lion sent me out to pick up a turkey on the Hendricks Ranch in Calabasas. And the Mr. and Mrs. were having an old-fashioned turkey shoot, and all the guests carried blunderbusses and dressed like pilgrims. Only it wasn't just the turkeys who were acting as targets. One of the pilgrims ended up with some 32 caliber holes in them. And then the Hendricks lackey and a buddy shoved the gun at me and stole the lion's bird. Well, I picked myself up and I went home. A heavy man was doing a heist job on my icebox. He was pouring himself a glass of milk to wash down a sandwich he was munching on. Hi, Regan. You're right ahead. Help yourself. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I didn't know how long I was going to have to wait, and I was getting hungry. There's a restaurant just up the block. I like it better this way, homemade. Fix you a sandwich? Pretty good deviled ham. Come on, let's close the box and open your mouth, buddy. Why not? We had a date, remember? Robinson, sheriff's office. That's what I figured. You don't mind me coming in like this, do you? What if I did? I'd leave. Sanctity of the home, you know. You can throw me out even though I got a badge. Uh, Let's cut away the fat, mister. What do you want? Answers to a couple of questions. What were you doing at the Hendricks place? Picking up a turkey? Well, that's a new one. Now, look, you ask them. I'll answer them. Never mind the feature page. How long have you known the Hendricks? Never met them before. Wrong answer. What do you mean? We found this out at the Hendricks house. A page torn out of the yellow directory with a red circle around international detective. Now, that doesn't say a thing. Maybe yes, maybe no. I'm still scratching around. It'll ruin your manicure. You know, Regan, you don't seem to realize the seriousness of this. That pilgrim you dragged in died. Well, I figured. We don't like unsolved murders messing up our record books. Well, then you're wasting your time here. I got lots of it. 
I don't come up for pension for 12 more years. What was that pilgrim's name? Well, he gave me Miles Standish. Sounds like a fake. Well, don't count on it. I once knew a John Smith. Give me the real name. I don't have it. All right. He's not a town boy, but we'll track him down. Now, straighten out something for me, Regan. How long did you say you knew the Hendricks? Now, look, I gave this to you once. Nothing's changed. How come we find a $5,000 check in that joker's pocket made out to cash and signed by Hendricks? Go ahead, answer. Just don't make a date. You may not be available. Yeah? Mr. Regan, this is Mrs. Hendricks. I, I must see you right away. Who did you say? Mrs. Hendricks, you remember? Charlie? No, no, there's no Charlie here. You must have the wrong number. Sort of annoying, isn't it, Regan, when you get a wrong number late at night? Well, it happens. Sure, sure, it does happen to me once. Anything else you want? Another deviled ham sandwich? Kitchen's closed. Pretty rotten hospitality. Well, you weren't asked. Okay, I gotta move anyway. See you later, Regan. Keep the mud off your shoes. G-R-3-4-0. Mrs. Hendricks, this is Regan. I just called you. Well, I couldn't talk. What do you want? Can you come out, Mr. Regan? Right away. You're still lonely? Things aren't going well. Well, murder's like that. I've got to talk to somebody. Won't you please come? Give me a reason. I can tell you some things now I couldn't mention before. Like why your husband wrote a $5,000 check to the dead man? Check? But there must be some mistake. What do you mean? My husband couldn't write a check that large. He doesn't have any money of his own. It's all in my name. All right. Put a lantern in the window, lady. I'll need some light. Well, I headed out there fast. But when I raised a racket with a brass knocker, nothing happened. I tried a window, and a couple of scratches later, I was in the hall. The place looked empty like the Rose Bowl on January 2nd. I found Miss Hendricks' room where I talked to her and stepped inside. The decorations were different. Regan, I got something for you. It better be good. You're going into overtime. What do you mean? Bring some boys out to the Hendricks place with a wet rag. Somebody blew out Mr. Hendricks' fuse. Well, I backed out of the room and I made it for the bar trying to turn up a bottle. In the corner, something else turned up instead. Another dead body. The turkey Phelps and his buddy had stolen from me. Somebody real eager had done a carving job on it before it was even cooked. They'd torn it apart like they were looking for something. It was morning before the sheriff's boys cleaned up the Hendricks mess and we got back to town. Robinson had a few more questions, but I was still short on the answers. Ballistics had one, though. Same gun did the job on both Miles Standish and Hendricks. That's all. Homicide was getting places in a hurry, like a snail hauling a piano. Well, the lion was waiting for me outside the sheriff's office and he pulled me to the side. His eyes were lit up like a pinball machine, and you could tell he'd caught the scent of a greenback. They treat you okay, Regan? Eh, good enough. No rough stuff? Well, nothing that shows, no. Thinking we're in luck. I've been turning up things. We've been playing the wrong horse. Well, that figures you're good at picking losers. Hendricks is a piker, a social climber. He's a dead one. I'll send him flowers, but I'm telling you, he could only write checks for five Gs. With a big bounce. Somebody else in this thing can write bigger ones. Well, let me guess who. Mrs. Hendricks, that's who. Oh, I tell you, Regan, it pays to keep up your connections. How high can she go? The sky's below sea level. What else you got? 
Standish is a phony moniker. That's grammar school. Real name, Jeffrey Kelly, age 42. He's a wholesale jeweler. He had a little business with Mrs. H. $250,000 worth. That's going to run up his taxes. He can handle it. What did he do for her? I drew a blank, but he deposited her certified check in the bank yesterday morning. Mm-hmm. How does Phelps figure? I don't know. Well, who's the little man in the big overcoat? I can't do everything. you got to do some work, too. Yeah, sure. Now, find Mrs. Hendricks. Offer her the services of international detective at our usual nominal rate. But don't underplay it. Now, get busy. Where are you going? Home to bed. A man's got to get some sleep. Well, the time was ticking out, but the game wasn't over yet. We figured to have a fast finish, and the lion had a pretty good idea about catching some shut-eye. So I moved for the office and to stretch out on the couch. But through the glass, I could see there was a light on. Company was inside. Crestview 2045. Phelps, no luck. I looked all over. I, I told you, I tore the place apart. Nothing's here. I'm trying my best. Stop harping. Oh, well, it must be someplace else. Okay, okay, right away. Leave a nickel, Buster. Huh? Oh, Regan. You're looking for something? Uh, you, Pilgrim. What else? Plymouth Rock. Come on, punk, level it. Oh, it coax me. All right, Nick, because you've been crying for this. <laughs> now flatten out. <laughs> well, it felt good to watch the big guy fall. He folded in like a steeple in an earthquake. When his head bounced on the lion's carpet, it figured he was due for a long sleep, so I went through his pockets. Ticket stubs from the prize fights, the gun, and a pocket knife I dumped into the safe. It was a pass to the Don's game on November 25th. He must have swiped that from his boss, so I filed that in the lion's desk for future reference. But this guy Phelps had taken orders from somebody besides Hendricks. I just heard him do it on the phone. So when I turned up an old envelope with 832 North Palm scratched in the back, I crossed my fingers. He'd been calling a Crestview number, and the phone book said that I had a lead. North Palm was in the Crestview Exchange area. So I called for the cops to sweep up Brother Phelps, and I climbed back onto my broomstick. I drove out through Beverly Hills. I wound up in front of a big Spanish house with potted $10 bills on the driveway. There was a new Nash sticking out of the garage, and I walked around to take a look. But Honest John had beat me to it. Who's there? Now, stick around. I want to talk to you. Stand back. Stand back. You like cars, don't you? Maybe you want a hot rod. No, you don't. Get away from me. Hey. Well, it was the little turkey fan that I'd last seen in an overcoat. Phelps Buddy. He took out of there like a cow in deer season, so I let him go. No license. Well, I took a look around the car he'd been sniffing, but nothing showed except the registration. It said Mrs. Agnes Hendricks. I went to the house and rang the doorbell, and she answered. Oh, what's you? I'm Mr. Regan. All right, I'll ask myself in. Yes, come in. Who are you expecting, John Alden? No, I, I'm glad to see you. You know, I don't like girls who break dates. Oh, that. Yeah, that's one thing. I couldn't help it. I, I couldn't wait for you to come all the way to Calabasas. You got impatient on account of a body in the house. You saw him. Yeah, after I tripped over him in your room. I didn't do it. Did I say you did? You've got to believe me. Relax. I look like a jury. You've got multiple vision. Oh, Mr. Regan, I was so frightened. I didn't know which way to turn. We've been through all that woman driver routine. You don't like your husband. You wanted to get rid of him. But only in Reno. All right, now let's get back to page one. You gave 250 G's to a jeweler named Kelly. You bought a rock. What? A rock, Plymouth rock. It's a diamond. It's got to be. Well, Why'd you do it? Who'd you buy it for? Myself. My lawyer said I should get it for myself. That's all. He likes you pretty, huh? No, no. It was a community property thing. He said I could keep my husband from knowing how much money I had when he asked for a divorce settlement. Only hubby got wind of the deal. 
I guess so. Uh, you're making sense. Only why did he write a check to Kelly? Well, it was a small one. It must have been for a paste imitation, don't you think? That's not my business. Keep dealing. I mean, maybe he planned on switching them and getting my real one. Uh, that's been done. But he actually did it. Because all through this, there's been a diamond in the place where I always keep it. All right, you got a strong boy, Phelps. Had him out looking for the real diamond. What? And the other guy, the old man, was out in the garage. No. Phelps tore up my office, phoned here to you. Mr. Regan, Now, look, please. there's been two guys killed. Mr. Regan. <laughs> Good evening, Pilgrim. Where's your overcoat? Stand still, please. Yeah, my foot's in a crack. Mr. Regan, this is... This is John Alden. Oh, can it, will you? I've seen him act one part already. That's true. Mine is the only name that's real. This is my house, Mr. Regan. Lawyer? Yes, I came here to see him, Mr. Regan. I just got here before you did. Be quiet, Agnes. Well, I got it all now. You won't keep it. Phelps took his orders from you. It's a waste of testimony. You started this. Spotted the gem switch. Figured to cash in. You're losing your chip. Shut up, will you? I got aces. Hendricks outfoxed you. You never found the real diamond. Five in the hand draws blood. Mr. Alden, don't... Now you keep out of this, Agnes. She's not in it. You are. That's all, Regan. All right, come on. Drop it. Drop it. Go there. I... I guess I hit him with the paste one. Huh? Look, the diamond, it... It broke. Yeah. It was just luck. I... I have the other one, too. I thought Alden was honest. I came to tell him I found it in my husband's cider. Well, that tears it. Come on, Priscilla. That docks the Mayflower. Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations has been bringing you Jeff Regan, Investigator. And this week... Brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Socks are on everyone's feet, and mind, and shopping list this time of year. And it's important to set children's expectations low around the holidays by ensuring that at least one gift looks really important, but is actually just new socks. That's why we have BOGO sock deals on every brand in stock, but only during our annual Black Friday sale when you can disappoint members of your family and get a deal, too. We now return you to the conclusion of Jeff Regan, Investigator. Well, the whole thing folded in like an elephant on a pogo stick. Yeah, the lawyer did it all right, both of them. When he spotted what Hendricks was up to with that diamond switch, he moved in, but not for his client. The jeweler, Miles Standish, alias Kelly, got bumped because he was the only one who could tell the real diamond from a phony. But Hendricks got wise to the muscle act, and so he got shot. Well, the lion was real happy the way it worked out. That dame with the nerves wrote him a check. So he invited me out to Thanksgiving dinner. He offered me any part of the turkey that I wanted. I told him. But I got it anyway. Jack Webb is featured as Jeff Regan with Herb Butterfield as Anthony J. Lyon. It's CBS at the same time next week for more hard-boiled action and mystery with Jeff Regan, Investigator. Written by Larry Roman and Jackson Gillis. Produced by Sterling Tracy. 
featured in tonight's story were Mary Lansing, Marvin Miller, Paul Fries, and Paul Dubuff. Original music for this program is by Milton Charles. Bob Stevenson speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. second helping this week, Casey, crime photographer, with After Turkey, The Bill. Say, Casey, you think they'll ever put my statue in the Hall of Fame? What are you famous for, Ethelbert? For 27 straight years, I always got the same part of the turkey. <laughs> That's some kind of a record, ain't it? Well, because you consistently get it in the neck, that might make you notorious, but not really famous. Brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Trample your way to incredible deals and elbow your way toward better savings at our annual Black Friday sale, where you get bonus miles on your hospital trips with every purchase you make. And now, back to Casey. Crime Photographer. Written by Alonzo Dean Cole. Our adventure for tonight... After Turkey, The Bill. Seven o'clock in the evening. A medium-priced uptown restaurant known as Patrakis' Olympian. At a table for two... A flashily dressed young man pushes aside his empty plate and says to the pretty girl who sits opposite... Hey, that turkey wasn't half bad. <laughs> you didn't leave much of it. Neither did you. Shall I order dessert now? Uh-huh. Hey, waiter. Gus. Okay, Keith. What do you want now, Joe? We're ready for the plum pudding now. Who plums pudding? That's what you want, too, isn't it, Lottie? Yes, and coffee. Same here. Okay, Keith. I don't know why you won't let me do anything for you in a classy way, Lottie. I asked you out for a Thanksgiving spread, and you made me bring you to a cheap place like this. Joe, you can't afford to throw your money away. How do you know what I can afford? I may not have as good a job as my cousin Bird yet, but it doesn't What's mean I... What's Bird got to do with He's it? He's got plenty to do with it. You didn't have to work today. You'd be out with him now instead of me, I know. Bird isn't working tonight, Joe. He came home before we left there. I could have had dinner with him if I'd wanted. Yeah. Oh, don't be like that, please. Why shouldn't I be? Well, I was in... While I was away, you and him became awful good friends. We were always friends, the three of us. We grew up on the same block. Yeah, but while I was away, he moved into your old man's room and house so we could be closer friends. Oh, don't start that again tonight. We're out for a pleasant evening, and it has been pleasant so far. Please, Joe. All right. Comes out of dessert. Two plums of pudding and coffee. You know, when you go out with me, Lottie, you're going to get class whether you think I can afford it or not. I'm going to take you to dance land. I'm going to buy you a whole roll of tickets. Best you'd get out of that tight wide fur is a soda and a movie. All right, that's all now, Gus. Bring me a check, will you? Yes, Senator Joe. All right, Joe. Since you won't drop the subject, we'll talk about birds. Well, 
He wants me to marry him. Figured that from that dirty double-crosser. He isn't a double-crosser. He knows I've been going with you since we were kids and I've always been crazy about you. And while I was taking that bum rap on the reformatory... You didn't he... take a bum rap, Joe. You asked for what you got. All right, so the cops had the goods on me. That gave Ferd no right it to... It gave think... me a right to do a lot of thinking. Hmm. So you decided a sneaky yellow drip like my cousin is a better bet than me. Huh? I don't think Ferd is sneaky or yellow. No, you don't, huh? No. And I don't think you're a criminal. Nice of you to say that. I'm not being nice. I'm saying what I believe. If you make me sure you've learned your lesson... I... Yeah? Well, you won't have to worry about me liking Ferd or... or anyone. There's never really been anybody but you, Joe. Only... only I've got to be sure. How do I make you sure, Lottie? Just show me and Dad that you're steady, that's all. And I've been showing you that since I came back. Didn't I get a job right away? Yes, Joe, but... But I don't see how you can afford those two new suits and that overcoat with what you're making. Oh. Oh, I get it. Ferd can buy clothes or take you out, and it's okay, isn't it? He's never had trouble with the cops. But the minute I spend an extra buck, you and your old man figure I've glommed it somewhere. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Your old man especially. Hates my insides. He don't want you to have anything to do with it. If he Dad hated you, he wouldn't let you stay at our rooming house. He rents rooms, and I pay for the one I rent. That's business. And to ease your mind about the extra dough I spent, Lottie... I'm a lucky guy with dice and a good pool player. I... Here's your check, kid. Thanks, Gus. Pay you so we can get out of here. We're going to dance land. We're... What? Joe? I haven't got my wallet. Oh, you've lost your money? I don't know. Maybe I left it home. Well, phone Dad. He'll look in your room. Well, if he found it, I'd have to go there for it. It's only a few blocks. You stay here, Lottie, while I go... Oh, and... you you don't have to leave the lady here, kid. You're an old customer. I know you come back and pay. Well, thanks, Gus, but I can make better time alone. Hand him over, Cody, even that racket's the oh, blue one there. sure, sure. Mmm. Oh, this fancy coat. <laughs> nice and bright, with red stripes. You got a class, kid. Yeah, but right now I got no dough. I'll come back as soon as I can, Lottie. I hope you find your money, Yeah, Dad. I hope so, too. And how. Gee, Casey, it's nice of you and Miss Williams to have Thanksgiving dinner here in the Blue Note with me. Oh, we're nice people, Ethelbert. Well, the very best. True, warm-hearted, and generous to a fault. Pass the salt. Also fault. honest, kind, and steadfast. Here's the salt. And sure. pepper. You know, we're really understating our sterling qualities, Annie. We've risen to the heights of magnanimity, whatever that is, by... Chewing Thanksgiving turkey in this crummy joint we see every day simply because our little pal here had to work. We could only get away from his bartending long enough to grab a meal on the house. We hope you appreciate our sacrifice, Ethelbert. Oh, I do. Good. Pardon my reach for the Tabasco. <laughs> to prove your gratitude, Ethelbert, you can pay for our dinners. Yeah, well... Uh, Tabasco, uh, any? Huh? Thanks. Hey, you've made a splendid suggestion, Casey. Paying our bill will relieve Ethelbert of a small part of his obligation for our company. Say, come to think of it, you two are working today yourselves. You didn't have time to get a full meal any further away from your office than this crummy joint. Ethelbert, you impute our motive. He destroys my faith in human nature. Ah, yes. The spirit of the day is entirely lost upon this lug. Casey, if you'd pay me what you already owe this crummy joint, I'd be only too happy to buy your dinner. <coughs> Get it, Walter. This yeah. guy's too wise for us, Annie. <laughs> oh, I'm afraid so, Casey. Casey, 
Uh, yeah, Walter. You wanted the bar phone, you said he did. Oh, nuts. I'm only just finished my turkey. No, this means no dessert, Casey. I'll see what Burke wants. Well, stall him off if you can. Yeah, I'll do my best, Danny. Hello, Grace. <laughs> Hello, Casey speaking. Uh, look, Burke, we haven't finished our dinner yet. Oh, all right, all right. Wait till I get my pencil out. Corner of Whitestone and Evans. Well, what happened there? But is that all? For a run-of-the-mill story like that, we got to leave our dessert? Well, okay, Burke. All right, goodbye. Why I stick to this newspaper racket, I don't know. What was it, Casey? All the cri- Look, we got to get out to Whitestone and Evans, Ann. Some mug just held up a filling station there and got away with a couple of hundred bucks. Or Did he shoot anyone? No, no. Huh? Just one of those inside page fillers. Burke says news is light and we got to cover it. All right, where is Whitestone and Evans? The way uptown, not far from uh, Petrakis Olympian Restaurant. You know, we've eaten there a couple of times. Yeah, I remember. Hi, any description of the hold-up guy? Yeah, he wore a flashy blue overcoat with red stripes. See you later, pal. So long, Ethelbert. So long. Say, wait! Who's going to pay for this... crummy joint? <laughs> Our story will continue in just a moment. Casey, crime photographer, is brought to you by Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Nothing you need, everything you think you want, at prices that aren't really much more of a deal than at the outlet mall, actually. Uh, But you can legitimately trample someone's ant and get away with it. At our annual Black Friday sale. And now, back to Casey, crime photographer. Now here's what happened, Miss Williams. I'm working the station, see? I'm here in the office when this hold-up guy opens the door and says, Give me a dough. He had a gun, of course. Oh, sure, he had a gun. The time was about a uh, quarter past seven. What did you notice and about he... the guy aside from his flashy overcoat? Well, uh, he wore his hat pulled down over his eyes and a, a handkerchief was tied around the lower part of his face. Also, he worked fast. What'd he do? Well, he, he told me to get into the gent's uh, restroom there and to keep quiet. He locked the door on me and I, I heard him open up the money drawer there and then I heard him leave the joint. I started pounding on the door and after a while I managed to bust out. That was uh, about a uh, quarter to eight. And then I phoned the cop. You mind if I shoot a picture of that busted door, Sergeant? Go ahead, Casey. Thanks. You want a picture of me, too, won't you, Mr. Casey? Huh? You? Oh, sure, yeah. The door and you. I'll shoot the door first. Hmm. <sighs> it's going to give me old lady a big kick to see me written up on a paper. <laughs> hey, uh, was this big puddle of grease in front of this door, Jones, when the hold-up guy locked you in? Oh, yeah, yeah. I spilled it there earlier, and I, I didn't have time to clean it up. And the mug must have stepped in it, Casey, along with the description of his flashy coat I've sent out. I include instructions to look for a guy with dirty grease stains on his shoes. Well, the two things together ought to nail him, sir. Yeah, I yeah. told the sergeant something else that ought to nail a guy. Well, what's that? Well, one of the bills he stole out of the money drawer was an old 20 that had been torn in two and kind of stuck together with scotch tape. I-, I took it in just before the robbery, so I remember it. Well, looks like you cops have plenty to work on, Sarge. Yeah. Well, we got all there is, Annie. Let's blow out of here and get back to the blue note and get some... Plum pudding and coffee. Ha uh-huh, come on. Hey, 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 ain't you going to take my picture first? Uh, you, oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll kind of stand here by the empty cash drawer hey, and uh, point my finger at it. Yeah, that'll be original. I'll stand at point, pal. Go ahead. Great. All set now. Shoot. 
Jones. Hey, hey, gosh, I'm getting my picture took. Don't walk in front of the camera. I have just heard what happened to you. About that guy in the blue overcoat which holds you up. Well, I'll tell you all about that later, Gus. As soon as I get my picture. No, no. I tell you and those cops about it now. You'll tell. Who are you? Oh, I, I am Gus Nicopopoulos. I am waiting in Petrakis Olympian restaurant three blocks from here. And I know who is the kid who robbed my good friend Jones. You know? Yeah, I know as soon as I am told the news about that fancy overcoat. What are you talking about? Yeah, what are you talking about? I tell you cops everything. Even where to find this hold-up kid. He tell me he is going with his girl to dance land. You got no right to pull me off that dance floor, copper. You don't believe this waiter, Sergeant. Joe hasn't held up anybody. We're going to see about that. Close the door, will you, Casey? Okay, Sarge. Now... This overcoat we got from the check room, it's yours, isn't it, Bowers? Yeah, it's my coat. And you, Jones, say the guy who stuck you up wore a coat just like it? It's the same coat, Sergeant. You're nuts. The store I bought this blanket had a couple of dozen just like it. Now, take it easy, kid. If your story's okay, we'll check on everyone who owns a coat like this. I'm going to search you. While I'm at it, you can tell us what you did after leaving Petraka's restaurant. After you couldn't find your wallet, I mean. I went straight to my room and house. I looked for my dough. Finally, I found it in the dresser drawer. And I came straight back to Petrakis for Lottie. That's Miss Newcomb here. Yeah. The dose in that wallet you just took out of my pocket. It's about 40 bucks, and it's mine. I didn't steal it. Hey, is that torn 20 in the wallet, Sergeant? No, Jones. Torn 20? I guess he hasn't got a gun on him either, Sergeant. He's clean, Casey. Yeah, so are his shoes. Grease would show up plain on those light tans. Well, he may have changed shoes and hidden a few things. Yeah. How far is your rooming house from that filling station, kid? Well, it's it's two blocks away down Evans Street. My father runs it. How long did Joe leave you in Petrakis' while he was finding his money? I, I didn't time it. It wasn't more than 15 minutes, maybe a half an hour. So what? So you had plenty of time to stick up Jones and go to your room before you came back to Petrakis'. All right, if that's the way you dope it, copper, search my room. I'm going to do that little thing, young fella. All of you. Let's go. Lottie, why have you and Joe come home with all these people and these policemen? Everything's all right, Dad. They've made a mistake about Joe, but it's going to be all right. A mistake about Joe? A big mistake, Mr. Newcomb. I don't understand. I'm Sergeant Healy, 5th Detective District. There was a stick-up a few blocks from here tonight, and uh, Joe Bowers here is under suspicion. A stick-up? Joe? He didn't do it, Dad. I know he didn't. You were with him, Lottie. You must know. Your daughter wasn't with him for a long half hour. Mr. Newcomb... I haven't taken time to get a search warrant, so I'd like your permission to go over Joe's room. Give him a go-ahead. I have. He'll find nothing to tie me up with any heist job. All right with you, sir? Oh, yes, sir. Of course. Thanks. Take me to your room, Bowers. Come on. Everybody else stay here with this uniformed officer. Miss Williams and I would like to go with you and Joe, Sarge. Okay, Casey. Oh, thanks, Sarge. My room's on the next floor. It's right up those stairs. Well, lead the way, kid. And don't try anything tricky. Why should I try anything? What you got on me is that a stick-up guy wore an overcoat like mine. And that's all you're going to get. There's the door of my room, cop. Open it. Make yourself at home. Give me a key. The door isn't locked. I never bother. Hmm. I'll turn on the lights. Now, do your stuff. I will. You won't find anything locked up here. Because I got nothing worth stealing. And nothing to hide. Now, if you were going to work on my cousin's room across the hall... 
You'd need a fistful of keys. He's one of those careful, secretive guys. You, you know? got a cousin living across the hall? Yeah, his name's Ferd. A Ferdinand. And is he a crumb? I take it you don't like him. I like him about as much as he likes me. Maybe more. But he's been making a play for my girl. He isn't getting anywhere. How you doing, copper? You see anything of the dough I'm supposed to have stolen or the gat you think I use in that stick-up? Not yet, kid. And you won't. I'm 100% in the clear. Oh, yeah? How did this get under your carpet? What? Casey. A torn $20 bill. Stuck together with scotch tape. I never saw that bill before. And I think Jones will identify it as the one taken from his cash drawer. Wait a minute. There's more dough under this rug, Sarge. A couple of hundred bucks at least. I spotted it, Casey. I don't know how it got there. I didn't pull that stick up. That's a comedy, Joe. This money nails this you. This is a frame-up. I tell you, it's a frame-up. Where'd frame you hide your gun? I never had a gun. I swear I did. I'm clean, kid. Where's the gun? Wait a minute. Will you give me a break? Let me think. Let me think a minute. Yeah. Yeah, there's just one mug will pull a thing like this. And if you're right, guys, you won't let him get away with it. Question Ferd, Sergeant. Question my cousin Ferd. His room's right across the hall. Might be a good idea, Sergeant. Okay. Let's go over. That's the room. Yes? I, um... I'd like to talk to you a minute. This is the police. Just a second. Just starting to get ready for bed. I'm Detective Sergeant Healy, young man. This is Miss Williams and uh, Mr. Casey. How are you? Hello there. What do you want? Let me close this door. Your cousin Joe here has made some accusations against you that it's my duty to investigate. Oh, he has, has he? Do you own an overcoat like Joe's here? Blue with uh, red stripes? An overcoat like that? Have you ever worn one? I wouldn't wear a zoot blanket like that if you paid me. You say? Yes, I say. Mind if I look around your room? Why? Bert, someone wearing an overcoat like Joe's held up the Whitestone filling station tonight and... What? You know where I bought this coat, Bert. I think you got one just like it on the QT. I think you slipped my wallet out of my pocket just before I left here with Lottie tonight, so I'd have to leave her and look for it. You were watching the rest of it, and when I left it, you went to that filling station. Why, you're crazy. Sergeant, you can't believe it. Maybe I don't, but I want to search your room. Oh, wait a minute. Huh? Have you got a search warrant? No. Then get out of here. Say. I know I write. Unlike a certain relative of mine, I've got a clean record. Who are you calling a lousy You, rat? Joe. Boy, I'll knock and you out. And it's cheap. I'll cut it, both of you. So you don't want me to search your room, hey, young fella? You heard me before, Sergeant. Hey, pal, wait a minute. You're taking the wrong attitude. You got nothing to hide. This isn't the way to show it. He's got a good reason for saying you can't search, and I'm going to prove it. Keep out of that closet, Joe. Take me if you can. I'll make you hold it first. Let me go. Let Come me on, go. Joe. I'll get a warrant. You won't need a warrant, Sarge. Look there. What? In the back of his closet, covered with other clothes. Oh. An overcoat like yours. Just like mine. And in his pocket, there's a gun. I never saw that coat before. I never saw that gun. Well, somebody did. Come on. I'm taking you both to headquarters. <laughs> I don't know how that overcoat got in my closet, Sergeant. I swear I never saw it or that gun before. So you've been saying, Ford. Both of you get into this car. You did this to me, Joe. Sure, I got wise to your frame up, your louse. I threw it right back at you. We'll continue our discussion at the station house. Of course, you'll only hold me long enough to get my testimony. I'll be back home in an hour or so. Maybe. 
You and uh, Miss Williams tagging along after us, Casey? No, Sarge. Uh, I may give you a buzz later, though. We still have our Thanksgiving dinner to finish. So why don't you two get jobs that won't make you work on holidays? <laughs> why don't you? You mean like Captain Logan? <laughs> I've been thinking about it for the last 25 years. Good night. <laughs> nice, Sarge Neely. Come on, let's get into our car, Casey. And get our stuff to the I'm paper I'm going and... back to that rooming house, Annie. Why? Are you convinced that Cousin Bird framed Cousin Joe? Well, his attempt to prevent a search of his room didn't look very good. Annie, I'm just thinking. Well, Joe found that overcoat with what might be called surprising ease. Mm-hmm. It's hard to believe that Joe would invite his own arrest in order to frame his cousin. Why, one little slip. The framer, whoever he is, did make a slip, Annie. His plan didn't anticipate a grease puddle. And he had to get rid of a pair of shoes that may walk back and kick him. Well, none of the shoes in Joe's room or in Bert's had any grease stains on them. No? Sergeant Healy hasn't forgotten those missing shoes, and he'll be back pretty soon to really look for them. Well, I'm going to start looking right now. I'll ring Newcomb's bell. Sometimes I wish your snooping instincts were more restrained, Casey. I'd like a cup of coffee no. now and put... Hi, Mr. Newcomb. Mr. Casey. Yes, may we come in? Of course, but I... We didn't go with Sergeant Healy and his prisoners. I wanted to ask, how's your daughter now? She wasn't taking this thing very well when we left. Oh, she feels terrible about it. Miss Williams, perhaps a woman can talk to her better than I can. Will you try to convince her that that everything will come out all right? I'll gladly try, Mr. Newcomb. She's in our private living room. Go on in and talk to her alone, Annie. I'll stay here. All right. Good. It breaks my heart to see my girl crying, Mr. Casey. She's all I have. She blames herself for what has happened. It isn't her fault that two young fools became so infatuated with her. I knew they hated each other, but I never anticipated anything like this. No. Guess not. Of course, you had some reason for coming back here, Mr. Casey. Yes, I came back to ask your permission. Yes? Uh... I want permission to ask a few personal questions between ourselves and off the record. Very well. You haven't wanted Joe for a son-in-law, have you? In my place, would you? The boy has served a reformatory sentence that, according to my observation, has failed to steady him or improve his sense of values. Mm. Ferd has been Joe's opposite, I imagine. He always seems so. Lottie strikes me as a pretty sensible girl, Mr. Newcomb. Unless one of those fellows confesses he framed the other, or it can be definitely proven, she'll doubt both of them too much to marry either one of them. Yes, I think that's so. And as there will be no confession or definite proof, things should work out exactly as you planned. As I planned? You're the guy behind this double frame-up. Oh, Mr. Casey. You didn't think I'd be back, did you? You shouldn't have changed back into those comfortable old shoes after Sergeant Healy left here. You did a lousy job of cleaning off that grease. Oh, but you held up that filling station and framed both the boys to keep your daughter from marrying either one of them. I was very foolish, wasn't I? Yes, I think so. Shall I call Sergeant Healy? All right. You can call Sergeant Healy, Mr. Casey. I'm ready to confess. Uh, wait a minute. Wait. Let me take a close look at those shoes. What? pool of grease in that filling station you heard us talk about wasn't deep enough to reach far above the soles of a shoe. Hey. You greased those shoes yourself. 
You spread it on so thick it covers the toes and heels. I didn't spread it on. Pal, you're a beautiful liar. And I'm a beautiful dope. You greased those shoes and put them on knowing the cops had come back and spot them. You were willing to take the rap. Because your kid is in love with one of those punks. You can't prove that. Nobody can. And when I confess, that's all that's needed. You forget. The police lab will compare the grease on these shoes with a filling station grease, and it won't be the same. And then Sergeant Healy will go right back to work on Joe and Ferd. The police laboratory can tell? Yes, definitely, Mr. Newcomb. But if it couldn't, don't you think your confession would be much harder for your daughter to take than the loss of a little rat she thinks she cares for? Could I... I couldn't bear to see her cry anymore. All I could think of to do was what I tried. You see, I know the guilty boy, Mr. Casey, and she's loved Joe ever since they were children. No, Joe. I found his grease-stained shoes hidden in the cellar tonight. His taste in shoes is like his taste in overcoats, so I could make no mistake. Huh. Well, let's get him. Take him to the cops. Later, Mr. Newcomb. Your daughter's going to realize that the lowdown she'll get on Joe tonight is a cause for real Thanksgiving. Sheena's Jungle Room and Mid-Valley Mutations has been bringing you Casey, Crime Photographer. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Still observing pandemic protocol? Never fear. Join us for online offers and digital discounts that are so good, you would actually be forced to become a fool in a king's court if you miss out on them. Like, for real. They're outside, waiting. Right now. Just click Add to Cart and Buy, and they'll go away, I promise. Wink. And now, get ready for the conclusion of Casey, Crime Photographer. So, the shoes fit Joe and he had to wear them, huh, Casey? Mm. They pinched so tight he cracked wide open, Ethelbert. He admitted planting a duplicate of his coat in Ferd's closet, everything. If his scheme had worked, Lottie would never have spoke to Ferd again, and she'd have married Joe. Well, that was Joe's idea, Ethelbert, but it worked out in reverse. Lottie sank into Ferd's manly arms when she heard the lowdown, and she seemed very comfortable. Gee, what some guys will do for love. As my sister Edna says, quote, If love didn't make the world go round, there wouldn't be so much dizziness. Unquote. Or so much niceness. Yeah. A grand guy, Lottie's old man. Hmm. Hey, Annie, what's the matter with her? We got plum pudding and coffee still coming to us. How about it, Ethelbert, huh? Oh, it's about time. <laughs> well, what's so funny? <laughs> there isn't any more. <laughs> Photographer is directed by John Deese. 
The original music is by Archie Blyer, and the program features Miss Jan Minor as Anne and John Gibson as Ethelbert. Herman Chittison is the Blue Note Piano. This is CBS for Columbia Broadcasting System. Dime Store Revelations. The show within a show, where we uh, give a special thank you to all of our chat room listeners out there. Scott67, Charles, and Mr. Fab. There's likely some lurkers out there. uh, People who are, are maybe secretly enjoying the Thanksgiving content. even though they might normally be very vocally against Thanksgiving as a, as a thing. I myself cannot help but notice the passage of the days on the calendar, and so I'm often inclined to uh, want to uh, give a little nod in the direction of, of whatever we're celebrating, uh, no matter what it might happen to be. And Thanksgiving is certainly one of those difficult ones these days where uh, it is loaded with all sorts of uh, not great uh, 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 political uh, uh, things and ideas. <laughs> it's just a, uh, a whole uh, a mess of, 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 of not fun uh, when you have to really unpack it. Um, and, and the part of Thanksgiving that I like is becoming more and more personal and less and less something that I, I care to share with the, the world at large. So, uh, I, I mean, it is what it is. It's, it's one of those things where uh, certainly uh, I don't mind uh, having a nice meal with my family. Uh, uh, and, and getting a day off from work is pretty cool, too. But, uh, um, that, you, know, I, I'm, you know, whatever. It doesn't have to be a bird for me. I mean, we can whatever, whatever meal works, you know. Just, just having dinner, you know. Anyway, uh, if you're like me, you like to celebrate using the radio anyway. And so uh, I thought it would be nice to kind of dig into some shows that uh, are, are, are certainly adjacent to the kinds of stuff that we would usually play uh, on Dime Star Radio Theater, but uh, we probably aren't going to get to anytime soon for a variety of reasons. Uh, I'd like to get to the... Um, uh, uh, the detective stuff eventually, but there's some other shows that were maybe shorter run, and so I think might get to those first. Um, uh, oh, you, you know, you were specifically who are I was thinking of Heather when I was thinking of someone who might be listening, but might not actually have a uh, an upbeat opinion about uh, Thanksgiving as a holiday. Um, you're, you, but you, you've you've made your your Thanksgiving opinions well well known and documented on the radio even. So I, I don't. I don't think that's a, 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 a. I'm speaking out of out of school when I say that. 
Anyway, uh, uh, both Jeff Regan, investigator, and Casey, crime photographer, are shows that I think would fit in really well on this program, but I'm, I'm just not going to get to them anytime soon. So uh, we, uh, I'm probably going to have uh, Candy Matson uh, on before we get to those, uh, and, and a few others, too. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not that I don't like those shows. It's just, uh, you know, there's a lot of other amazing, great detective uh, radio out there. And, uh, I mean... We're getting near the end of uh, Box 13. But we still got a ways to go, so we got to think of, of some other shows that might follow up that when we when we get there. You know, I don't really get to say this uh, because, uh, you know, I mean, it's usually about an hour into my program before I talk, but, uh, you know, I, uh, being uh, led into Diamond Star Radio Theater by uh, uh, Barno and Kratoven, uh, uh, I mean, it's 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 a real treat because uh, we uh, certainly, you know, you've had a long day. The world is challenging and, and complicated and whatnot, and so uh, sometimes uh, you come into radio and and, and you're not uh, feeling your A game yet. Uh, but uh, but listening to uh, Barno and Creative and do a little bit of a, a, a comedy, uh, the, the Cheek and Tongues show, um, or, or I should say. Uh, um, uh, uh, music with, or, or, or how, how do they put it? Uh, uh, humor with a great sense of music. But yeah, uh, anyway, uh, <clears throat> yeah, they, they set things up so nicely that uh, Dime Star Radio Theater feels very at home by the time they've warmed up the airwaves. So um, thank you very much, uh, you two. Uh, it's it's very uh, it's very cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So we're, we got some Thanksgiving content uh, for you today. Uh, we're going to close things with an excellent episode of Suspense, another program that I have considered uh, running on um, a, a Dime Store Radio Theater. But uh, the thing about Suspense, though, is that one, it was on for years, and so once you commit to running uh, Suspense in order. That's a big commitment. <laughs> I'm just gonna say that right now. That's a, that's a, one of those things where like you you are you are in it for the long haul. And 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 who knows? We might get to that point at some uh, some future date where I, I'm kind of running down on shows and and whatnot. Maybe suspense will always be the show that I lean to for holiday content. Who knows? That's a, that's, that could be um, the way I run that. I mean, there are some good uh, Christmas episodes of Suspense as well. Um, anyway, uh, uh, long story short, Suspense was one of those programs that um, they often got a guest star to, to be in the show, and then a guest star would do uh, a performance uh, of some kind, uh, usually kind of like in a leading, often central main character with only a couple of other characters to, to support them uh, kind of situation. Um there's an excellent podcast out that's called uh, Stars on Suspense, uh, where the host actually kind of goes through and gives you a little bit of background about who the guest star is and and whatnot, which is is very cool if you're if you're into kind of like 40s and 50s TV, radio, and and, and movie stars, um, of which there were, were, were many uh, that worked a, a lot in radio. That's just the way things are. 
Now we're going to uh, finally close up our uh, ongoing series uh, of uh, the, the conversation between myself and Obadiah Bayer the, about the golden age of science fiction. Um, it, it felt appropriate to kind of put it in here um, because it is the last installment. And uh, well, we're going to be moving on into other things uh, next week and then in December. So I uh, wanted to kind of like wrap up any unfinished business we had. Um, I may rerun that at some point in its entirety. It's not that breaking it up into little sections kind of ruined the dirt anyway, but sometimes a a conversation like that might be good to hear again all at once. And so I was thinking maybe sometime next year when I need a break, I might dig up this conversation, but instead of in pieces, put it all together again. We'll see. That might be something I do uh, down the road. Uh, but but I also slipped in a few other uh, little radio goodies uh, that I enjoyed, and, including, and this is going to be the most recently aired piece of radio that I have dug up for Dime Store Radio Theater. This is a um, piece uh, that Robert Krolwich did on uh, why a turkey is called a turkey. Uh, for uh, He did a little series um, called Krolwich Wonders, which I, I was a fan of when it was on. And I think he has uh, since kind of rolled all of that stuff uh, into his work on um, Radio Lab with uh, Jad. But uh, um, he uh, he's an OG uh, radio uh, personality and and, and NPR personality. Uh, and, and you'll find uh, recordings of him going way 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 back. Always kind of in a sciency educational vein. Um, so to kind of offset that, I also included an episode of uh, Ripley's Believe It or Not for radio. Because, <laughs> you know, a little bit of truth, a little bit of fiction. It's uh, the way the modern world works, I guess. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, thank you for joining me on my radio journeys and whatnot. It's always uh, fun to get to take over the Sheena stream for a little while. Um especially around the holidays when things are getting a little bit hectic in your life and you, and you feel like you're always running out of time and there's just not enough uh, um, hours in the day to get everything done. Sometimes sitting back and listening to the radio with a few friends is a good way to kind of center yourself. You know, uh, uh, Heather mentions that uh, the only Thanksgiving thing that she likes because she is a Thanksgiving curmudgeon is this a song by the Celibate Commandos called Thanksgiving. I'm going to toss out that uh, there was a, a, in Portland uh, an, a, an act that was called Thanksgiving uh, that used to perform around for a while. I think uh, they moved on to a different band of some kind, but uh, I used to play uh, tracks by Thanksgiving uh, around Thanksgiving. Uh, the problem was is that uh, Thanksgiving was kind of like a sad, slowcore kind of music, uh, acoustic kind of driven things. And so it wasn't always fun to make people sad around Thanksgiving. <laughs> it's really never fun to make people sad, but uh, sometimes uh, the music takes you where the music takes you. Anyway, enough of my yapping. It's a uh, uh, Dime Store Radio Theater here on Sheena's Jungle Room. Uh, the, the best place to be on a Monday and a Tuesday night, if you ask me. Now, uh, let's get into things. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Uh, and uh, until tomorrow, I'll be seeing you.
As a point of reference, in this conversation, we are discussing the writers who have appeared on this presentation of Dimension X at the time of this recording, on the 12th of August, 2022. Since the conversation was conducted outdoors, the sound is less than perfect. The authors on the list we are referring to are Graham Dorr, Jack Williamson, Kurt Vonnegut, Frederick Brown, Robert Block, Murray Lannister, Ray Bradbury, Donald A. Wolheim, Robert A. Heinlein, Villers Gerson, Jack Vance, George Lefferts, L. Ron Hubbard, Ernest Canoy, John Dunkel, and Claris A. Ross. As someone who's uh, still interested in reading, still selling books, still loves science fiction, um, if you're listening to these stories on the radio and uh, you're like, oh, hey, I should read some stuff, you know, just as a recommendation, uh, it doesn't even necessarily have to be from the 50s order. What's What are some recommendations for uh, uh, listeners to read? I actually think I want to actually recommend some current short story writers because I think yeah. if you like this classic stuff, I think it's a good idea to check out what's actually happening in the genre now. The Golden Age of Science Fiction. A conversation with Obadiah Baird, a rare book collector and science fiction expert. Part six. Because science fiction is like a genre that like holds onto its history and is in dialogue with itself and is like mm -hmm. expanding and growing, but also like um, interested in where it's come from. So like you know, where it was forty yeah. years is not where it is now. So like so so I think I would hesitate to say that if you liked like a classic noir short story that you should go read like you know Tony Hillerman you know whereas I think right, right, sci-fi right. like there's a lot of conceptual stuff that old science fiction did that like like the kind of like the intellectual underpinnings are all still there like they're yeah. still exploring ideas but just new mm -hmm. ones and modern ones I mean, a couple of stories in the Dimension X era explored generation ships, and that's still a very vibrant subject in... So how about if I answer your question like this? If I was making Dimension X now, mm -hmm. I would have to include at least a couple of stories by Ted Chang. Oh, okay. Um, he wrote um, the story that the movie Arrival mm, uh, that's was based right. on. He is just an incredible... just craftsman he averages like a story a year he's an incredibly slow writer who just creates this he's like just intricate in, intricate beautifully thought out just um incredible stories um his first short story collection stories of your life i think is one of the best short story collections ever published mm. um i would recommend checking out Rebecca Roanhorse. She's moved more into novels yeah. recently, but her short story, Your Authentic Indian Experience, is right. uh, phenomenal, and you can read it online. Uh, I think Sarah Pinsker is a great short story writer. Mm -hmm. um, uh, her short story, and then there were N-1, and uh, <laughs> right. her story, Wind Will Rove, are both spectacular. Like, those are all stories that, like, people that I would adapt if I was doing a radio show like right now. now those are authors that I would adapt 
That's that's an even better question that I didn't ask that that was better to have answered anyways. You, I, we didn't even get into this, but like that is the one kind of bummer about listening to Dimension X is the uh, amount of uh, n- non-male uh, writers on the list is zero. <laughs> I mean, there were there were a handful of you had like Judith Merrill, right? Andre, yeah, yeah, Andre Norton. Uh, yeah, exactly. C.L. C. Moore. I mean, the thing is, like, there were women writing in the genre, but they were oftentimes writing under pen names so people didn't necessarily know. Right. Um, and they were oftentimes just criminally overlooked. Um, I think I didn't know Andre Norton was a woman for a long, long time. Was, was there a Lewis Paget story that they adapted? Did I see uh, that? I, I can't remember. Not that I see in the ones okay. that we've listened to so far. There might be something later. Um, I mean, I, I certainly, this is the thing that science fiction struggles with, is that, like, what was progressive and forward-thinking 40 years ago seems uh, passe and uh, old-fashioned now. And so, like, it, it, you, it's hard not to be in dialogue with yourself when you're a genre that has that much history to it. And there are people who have done good scholarship about the women who were writing in the genre at that time. And, um, you know, Judith Merrill went on to be a hugely important editor in the genre. Like, there were women uh, involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Important. It's just part of the problem. I think is part of the problem is that in the past there has been not enough women involved in liter- literature at large. But another part right. of the problem is that the ones who are get erased from the history of it and I think in some ways that has happened in science fiction a lot mm-hmm. yeah um, is the is the erasure of the contributions of women in golden age science fiction because they were there and they were important right right like, I mean like anywhere that anything is happening there was always like non-white men <laughs> doing things yeah. it's just it, it, um, unfortunately most of the editors and publishers are and working feel, and I feel sorry for them having to put up with 20 year old Isaac Asimov Jesus <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah yeah I mean it, 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 certainly um, uh, you know, we um, we're always kind of like trying to scratch that itch of like finding a fantastic futuristic sounding story that also speaks to what's happening in our lives now uh, and so, uh, listening to Dimension X is also this exercise in like trying to put yourself in the mindset of 1950 America, uh, and that's not always a very pleasant place to to put your mind. Uh, but uh, in that way, like I help it, I think it helps uh, elucidate these kinds of inequities that perhaps um, are less obvious in some other kinds of modern storytelling. Well, I feel like the science fiction of the era isn't even necessarily like. 1950 like the sci-fi the way that science fiction is in dialogue with the 1950s it's not in dialogue with the 1950s that actually existed right but the 1950s idea of itself right and you especially see that in ray bradbury Mm -hmm. yeah 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 like his idea of just like the idyllic small town and like Mm -hmm. the perfect boyhood you know (laughs) my biggest problem with ray bradbury who i really enjoy is how that core piece of what he does rings so false. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a hardcore nostalgia for um, uh, acceptable, mischievous boys 
there's a hardcore nostalgia for moms and dads talking about are the kids okay today you know like he really jones is for this part of america that probably only existed in fiction um but uh certainly like he can't help himself there's something there where it's like he just injects that into he's like the norman rockwell of science fiction in a way where it's like he just puts americana in everything Yeah. yeah Yeah, he puts Americana on Mars. Right, he puts right. like the nineteen fifties nuclear family on Mars. Right, 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 and, like, and, it, and it's like hilarity ensues. It's like, Gee, Willikers, are we going to survive? Our yeah, yeah, yeah. Blew up, you know? Leave it to Beaver, <laughs> but there's a robot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's so much about it that it that, that does seem a little bit corny. Like part of me kind of loves it, and part of me is just like, really, Ray? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, to that point, when I read it now, like it seems so corny that it underlines what's wrong about it you know and and like i feel like in a way it almost better highlights you know a a, a modern perspective in a way that it couldn't have done then because i think he genuinely meant those things then you know like i think he was trying i don't think he was necessarily trying to be like corny about it i think he really did like small town america (laughs) right and it doesn't necessarily feel like malicious it just feels unaware right uh, because you're talking about a period of time that was like you know, the civil rights movement started mm. in the 50s. You know, Selma, you know, right. all this, like... He could have been... He's not describing a universal American experience at all. Yeah, he's yeah. He's not in, you know, like, you kind of... I mean, he's, he, he even his attempt at even addressing, like, a social issue where he likens the Martian tribes to Native American tribes and yeah. whatnot... Yeah. is very ham-fisted and is yeah. even like a yeah. old conversation at that point when he's doing it. Like, yeah. that analogy would, would have been more apt like in the, like, 1800s or, or earlier. <laughs> so there's something about him where, like, even his attempts at social commentary is really outdated. <laughs> yeah, the most, the most awkward part in The Martian Chronicles is the short story involving all of the African-American people in the town Yes. Like, yeah. <laughs> oof. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. <laughs> very. Very awkward. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I. I mean, certainly, um, the the whiteness of uh, golden age of science fiction can also uh, uh, can't be uh, understated. <laughs> no, I mean, like, it's interesting because there were so many people who didn't really take part in fandom or like meet each other that you can't say that there weren't right non-white people writing science fiction it's just you know their names are not as well known but they've certainly been lost to time if yeah. there were before the 1950s i mean you really get like samuel delaney that's um, about it <laughs> and the, amazing, the thing i love about samuel delaney you go from like the whitest the straightest just science fiction is like that to like african-american queer man who, like, well, let me lay it on the table here just, like, is not gonna hide behind anything is mm-hmm. very upfront about who he is you know um yeah by the 60s he's writing just like the craziest most experimental novel that's ever been like nominally called sci-fi and Dahlgren he i love sam delaney he, just <laughs> blew, he took a genre that was so constricted and just Blue it wide open. See, yeah, I mean, like, and this is one of those recommendations that I think um, I've seen that name before for years, and I don't think I've ever picked up a book because I just was like, oh, it's another science fiction author, you know. Yeah. 
without seeing loin is great. Yeah, see, this is a recommendation. <laughs> I like that. And and wasn't afraid to call out the genre. He wrote an essay about the first time he ever encountered racism in sci-fi. Mm. It was Isaac Asimov making a joke to try and relieve tension. And right. Like, just completely missing the fucking mark. Right. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. Um, yeah. <laughs> coming back again to Isaac Asimov not being the greatest, even though yeah, some yeah. people want him to be. Uh, you know. Um, uh, you know, he, 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 he didn't always even mean well, but uh, uh, sometimes he tried. <laughs> uh. Yeah, I mean, the nice thing about if you like this golden age of science fiction, if you like the stuff that Dimension X does, you don't have to move on too much farther where you, before you get to see the people who are in reaction and in dialogue to it, the people who are like, right. like, here's the problems with the genre. You know, you get Samuel Delaney, you get the new wave in the 60s, you get feminist science fiction coming along in the 70s with Joanna Russ and right. Ursula Gwynn. Um, you know, basically, when you see the fiction that's in Dimension X, it's setting the ground, like the base layer. It, yeah, it's setting the foundation that like science fiction would be reacting to and in dialogue with for like the next thirty years, mm -hmm. in some really interesting ways, and, and in ways that I think are in some, in a lot of ways, more compelling than the actual original source material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, because so much of Dimension X is in that same kind of like uh, um, Bradbury way, a kind of like what if we had this mundane normal aspect of life but we put it in a science fiction context and we play that out for a half hour um, and, and, and I think it it, it, um, it speaks uh, well to the genre that like that was you know the base layer like there's so much worse layers you could have started with to build your you know uh, world song. <laughs> There's a story from around that era called uh, The Cold Equations. Mm. That's this sort of like weird misogynist sci-fi story about being trapped on a porn planet and having to repopulate and like... Interesting. Uh, the story's like... It's pretty like kind of gross. Sure. But it's interesting in the way in which people responded to it. Mm, right. Uh, including like Joanna Russ and uh, so in some ways like there are stories that have really like outlived their actual importance as stories just as like jumping off points for like people to respond to and like mm -hmm. build ideas about feminism or about like you know liberation or about misogyny or uh, yeah, I, I, I think that's interesting. I said this uh, about something else earlier, but um, uh, yeah, what science fiction at its best makes me start to think about ideas that hadn't occurred to me by using uh, science fiction tropes to get me there. Mm. You know, so it's like it's the it's the vessel to which you get to think about more philosophical ideas in the world. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily. I mean, I do like thinking about robots, but like it, the robot gets me to thinking about other issues that are very fascinating, rather than just you know about the mechanics of how an arm moves. <laughs> I think it's interesting how there was this idea of like these stories existed to like explore one idea, 
But in what they failed to talk about or didn't talk about, they actually created a whole other set of ideas. Right, yes. Like, the like the failings of 50 science fiction to talk about the experience of, of women led to a bunch of science fiction writers saying, like, okay, what would that world have been like for women? Mm-hmm. What would be wrong with it? What could make it better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, like... Um, uh, it's the first volley, so you see like a lot of people afterwards, kind of going like, "Oh, um, yeah, let's uh, let's explore this other stuff instead." <laughs> right. Uh, well, any anything to wrap up with as we as we? Uh, I mean, I feel like we, we covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. What I what I liked about the idea of talking in a more casual way like this about it is that um, you know, yeah, older science fiction can definitely be a stuffy and difficult thing to crack. And my theory with these stories on the radio was that, like, here is, like, a fully audio presented with sound effects adaptation to kind of help overcome that barrier mm-hmm. in case you were like, I don't want to read something from the 50s, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think this ca- casual conversation has put a little more life to maybe some of these names and stories that were, like, maybe just lit something on a page somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I mean... I found most of it to be at least worth exploring. Mm-hmm, Rarely mm-hmm. do I read a story where I don't take something away from it or find it in some way interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I think even the uh, L. Ron Hubbard story in the Dimension X run, while mm-hmm. probably one of the weaker stories of the uh, series, had a couple of moments in there where I was like, well, that made me think about this or, or whatever, you know, like, it, it, I, it gets the, the juices flowing. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't necessarily the best writers who were the most popular. <laughs> Fair enough. That would actually be my advice. Is yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ignore okay. all the mains, the big names. <laughs> Go to the, uh, the smaller people. <laughs> check out the women who were writing stuff. Yeah. C.L. Moore's stuff from that era is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, again, I, I'm going to put together a little list here of stuff you've mentioned because uh, this is a good... Good uh, recommendation. C.L. Moore is cool because she is like very much in that like pulp. I mean, she wrote a, a couple stories about Gerald of Jouarie, who's basically like a swordswoman. Oh. And I mean, like she was writing these contemporaneously with like the Conan stuff. Interesting. She was writing about a woman who was like sure, out, like decapitating motherfuckers. And, right, right. Um, it's like. Uh, take this, Elrond, or uh, uh, what's his name, uh, Robert E. Howard. I don't think it was even like necessarily a response to Robert E. Howard. I it think was just, she was just kind of doing her own thing. Separate and it just uh, creation to be like this, like yeah, interesting. Um, she's really interesting. Um, See, that's the first place my mind goes when something like that happens within close proximity of something else. Right. Is that it must be a conversation but it's I, surprisingly I, how often there's just kind of like this sep- spontane- spontaneity where like similar things that. I mean, yeah. it was probably like they both had similar influences. Yeah, they probably both were reading a lot of Burroughs. No, you know? yes, yes, um, yes, yes, yes. I mean, th- this is the thing that uh, um, I I was uh, talking uh, about you know, the, related to my other uh, radio efforts uh, with my, uh, Max Hedrum when I was talking with Steve Roberts. It turned out that him and Gibson had a lot of the same points of reference, so that's why their work seems to have similar parallels. <laughs> it's not necessarily that they were in dialogue with each other, it's just that they all they liked the same things. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 
Cool. Well, uh, yeah. thank you so much. Uh, I, I guess uh, we should probably mention uh, for people who uh, are, are, uh, heard this conversation, uh, the Audient Void. Um, yeah, which maybe I'll get another issue out someday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, your uh, um, Lovecraft zine of weird fiction and, and uh, art and whatnot. Um, and then, of course, uh, if you like books and whatnot, uh, there's a bookstore that uh, you can buy from. Yeah, come to Salem Morgan. <laughs> buy books at the book bin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put a link in uh, for, uh, for listeners. So. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, thank you so much. Uh, uh, always good to talk about science fiction. The Golden Age of Science Fiction. A conversation with Obadiah Baird, a rare book collector and science fiction expert. Obadiah Baird is one of the owners of the book bin in Salem and Corvallis, Oregon, is a rare science fiction book collector, and editor of the horror and weird fiction zine, The Audient Void. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the truth. This is Ripley. Believe it or not. The last bottle of the before-prohibition brew of a famous Milwaukee brewer was prized so highly that being the last of its kind, the manufacturer had it insured for $25,000. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you a story about Thanksgiving when it was known as a fast day. You're listening to Dime Store Radio Theater's Thanksgiving Special in anticipation of that delicious meal and holiday later this week. We now return you to Ripley's Believe It or Not. Until the year 1631, the stern pilgrims celebrated their Thanksgiving Day by rigorously abstaining from food and drink. In that year at Charlestown, the annual Thanksgiving Fast Day on February 5th was changed to a feast day for the first time to celebrate the long-awaited arrival of a ship which landed with provisions from Ireland. It was not until President Lincoln's time that Thanksgiving Day was generally designated for the last Thursday in November. Believe it or not. This is Dime Store Radio Theater. So here's a question. The turkey is an American bird. It's found in the USA, Canada, sometimes Mexico, and nowhere else. So it is a totally North American animal. Why then is it named for a country, Turkey? Wondering about this, a long time ago I called up the then most eminent authority on nomenclature questions, a professor of Romance Languages at Columbia University, the late Mario Pei. And shortly before he died, I asked him first, what did the original Americans call the turkey? Indians have uh, something like 3,000 different languages. Each one called it its own language. But in no case, he said, did any tribe ever call it by the name turkey. And then later, when Europeans first took turkeys back to Europe, it was again called many different names, mostly because nobody really knew what it was. In Spain, for example, they said, this I, I, this is a peacock. Then uh, they renamed the peacock and they called it Tavo Real, which means a royal turkey. In France, they were still thinking maybe America is part of India, so... The French began calling it... Uh, cook, dand. Cock means chicken, dand means... From India. From India. The Greeks, who don't like anything from Turkey, they called it a rooster, which it isn't, and the Italians, much along the same lines... They call it gallinaccio, which means a bad rooster, a big bad rooster. But nobody called this bird turkey except the English. Now, why turkey? Well... 
If you lived in London in the 1500s, there were lots of things you'd call turkey. Turkey bags, turkey wheat, turkey rugs. Turkey was kind of shorthand for something that came from Asia or from far away. So like New Yorkers who think of the rest of America as, that's ah, New Jersey, Londoners were just as parochial. They would consider an Indian thing and a Turkish thing as being about the same sort of thing. So if a strange new bird shows up from some faraway country, it was only natural to call it a turkey, because turkey means far away. That's how the turkey got its name. Or, says Professor Pei, there's one last possibility. Before Columbus discovered America, Europeans already ate a tasty little bird from Africa called a guinea fowl. In Britain, they called this bird a turkey cock because it was shipped in from Turkey. So maybe when British settlers stepped off the Mayflower and heard the cry of this wild fowl in the American forest, when they wondered, what is that? The only name they had for a wild forest bird was the name they used back home for an African bird. Let's call it a turkey. The point is, for 500 years now, this altogether American, very gallant, if not particularly intelligent animal, has never once been given an American name. And now, for dessert, we offer... Suspense with the Screaming Woman. And now, tonight's presentation of radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Tonight, the story of a little girl and the terror in a vacant lot. We call it the Screaming Woman. Suspense is brought to you by... Sheena's Jungle Room, and Mid-Valley Mutations. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. Bring the family, and Grandma too, because if you can fight your way through deal-obsessed weirdos in a terrifying shopping center at four in the morning together, then you have what it takes to survive the inevitable wasteland that is waiting for all of us. After our annual Black Friday sale where kids get in free. And now, back to Suspense. So now, starring Sherry Jackson, here is tonight's suspense play, The Screaming Woman. I'm Margaret Leary, and i got to tell you how it happened. It was Thanksgiving Day, and it was nice and sunshiny, almost like summer except cooler. Mama was cooking the turkey, and I was watching. And Mama said to me, Oh, good heavens, I forgot. Your Aunt Betty's made some cranberry relish for us. Run over and get it, Margaret, so our feelings aren't hurt. And hurry, dear, this turkey's done to a turn. So I ran to Aunt Betty's, and on the way back, I took a shortcut to Mr. Kelly's loft. It's a swell place to play Indians and cowboys, or explore, or hunting for treasure, because trucks dump all kinds of stuff there. Loads of dirt and junk, and even big things like old cars and, and big pipes and chunks of concrete. Well, this day, coming back from Aunt Betty's, I saw that a lot of new chunks of dirt had been dumped there since Saturday. They even covered up a swell big concrete pipe that us kids called our fort. Covered it clear up. Well, I was looking around to see where it used to be, when all of a sudden... The sound was coming up out of the ground. 
under the junk and dirt and grass, and, and she was screaming all wild and horrible for someone to dig her out. I started to run. I fell down and got up and ran some more. It was an awful, awful long way to our house that day. Margaret. Mama, Mama. Margaret, haven't I told you not to slam the door? Oh, is that the relic? Listen, Mama, there's a screaming woman in the lawn. Wash your hands, Margaret. She was screaming and screaming and screaming. Mama, Mama, listen to me. We, we've got to dig her out. She's buried under tons and tons of dirt. Well, I'm sure she can wait till after dinner. Oh, honestly, next year, I swear I'm going to buy a bigger platter. Mama, don't you believe me? You've got to believe me. Oh, look, honey, I've got a million things to do. Oh, good gosh, look at you. How'd you get your knees so dirty? Well, running back from the lot. Well, never mind. Scoot and tell your dad we're about to eat. Uh, he's in the front room reading his papers. Dad! Oh, Dad, I gotta tell you something. Mm -hmm. Getting hungry, baby? Dad, there's a screaming woman in the lot. Mm. I never knew a woman who didn't. We gotta get picks and shovels and dig her up. Dad! Oh, I don't feel much like an archaeologist today, Margaret. Can't think of anything but food. Let's have an expedition next Sunday and dig her up. We can't wait that long. Dad, you'll die if we don't do it now. Calm down now. Dad, please. Listen, dear. After our Thanksgiving dinner, I'll come out and listen to your screaming woman. How's that? No, no, Dad. Maybe she'll die if you don't come out now. You've got to come now. Margaret. If you believe me, you wouldn't wait. Margaret, listen. You never believe me. Mama doesn't believe me. Nobody believes Margaret, me. Margaret, quiet down right this minute. Or I not only won't go with you, but you'll go to your room and stay. And without your Thanksgiving dinner. Now, is that clear? Yes, sir. It's clear. Margaret, you heard, Mother. Don't gobble. But, Dad, we've got to hurry. My dear young lady, this is Thanksgiving dinner. An occasion when we do not hurry. Oh, please. Please, Listen, Dad. If, if you pester me anymore, if you mention her again, this... Screaming, what's this? I won't go out with you to hear her recital at all. Now, is that understood? Yes, sir. It's understood. Well, now that I can be thankful for a full stomach, I guess we should consider what other things we have to be thankful for. Well, we're all healthy. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for my big daughter. Right, baby? Yes, Dad. And for my loving wife, who is still the most romantic woman I know. Oh, silly. <laughs> I'm thankful I didn't marry somebody else. Well, you nearly married Dora Lampo. You even gave her a oh, ring. Oh, that never meant a thing. No, you've only had one serious competitor since we were all kids. Oh, who? Helen Nesbitt. <laughs> yeah, Helen was my first love. When she was about as old as Margaret, I gave her a present one Christmas and she gave me one. I still have it. That paperweight on your desk. Yeah. Dad. It's funny how we hang on to things that were important when we were kids. Dad. Now, just a little longer, Margaret. Oh, Dad, please. Oh, go on, dear. You'd better take her out to the lot before she collapses. Okay. Come on, Margaret. Let's hear this wailing banshee of yours. Now, just where is this screaming woman of yours? Lead me to her. Over here, where our fort used to be. The fort? The big concrete pipe. It's all covered up now. Mm, Kelly is really getting this lot filled in. All right, where's the lady? Right about here, Dad. Listen. Don't hear a thing, except the wind. You better button your sweater, Margaret. Listen. No, it's the trolley over on Aspen Street. Hey there! The screaming woman! Hey! <laughs> I'm afraid your screaming woman's let you down. 
But she was here, Dad, right under where they dumped all this dirt. I heard her screaming and screaming and screaming like she was underneath in the fort. Somebody dumped tons and tons right on top of our fort. Oh, that's too bad they buried your fort, dear. I saw two of Kelly's big trucks here last evening, and there was a dump truck in here this morning, too. It isn't because they covered the fort. There must be your screaming woman doesn't like grown-ups. Oh. Only delivers her solo for kids. Maybe she can't scream anymore. Well, I'm going to take a nap now, let my dinner settle. Aren't you going to help me, dear? Don't you think this is a sort of silly game? It's not a game. All right. All right, dear, but don't stay too long. Mama probably would like some help with those dishes. Dad! Dad! Oh, I know I heard her scream. I know it. Oh, darn, darn, darn. down the rest of the afternoon before you make yourself sick. <laughs> no, I've got to dig her up. I've got to go back. It's all those comic books you've read, darling. Now I forbid you to leave the house. Close your eyes and take a nap like a good little girl. <laughs> what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Black Friday sale. To make the thrill and excitement of shopping on Black Friday that much more enjoyable, we've planted five landmines throughout the store, creating a chaotic and deadly environment to really get the juices flowing. Our annual Black Friday sale. I guess you're right with deals this good, it probably should be against the law. And now, back to suspense. And now, we bring back to our Hollywood soundstage, Sherry Jackson, starring in tonight's production of The Screaming Woman, a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. After a while, I stopped crying. I had to get back to the lot where that woman was screaming, but I was locked in. So I tied a sheet to the bed and let it out the window and chinned down to the ground. Then I ran to the garage and got shoveled and ran to the empty lot. The sun was almost down and it was getting cold. I started to dig fast. Hi, Maggie. It was Dippy Smith. He goes to my school. What you digging for? For a screaming woman. She's down on the ground and I'm going to dig her up. You can help me dig, Dippy. There's an extra shovel. I don't hear nothing. 
Well, listen. Just listen. No, I don't hear nothing. Well, just wait. You will. Hey, there. There, did you hear it? Hey, that's okay. Do it again. Do what again? The scream. Do it again. Go on. I'll give you this Aggie if you teach me to do it. What a dog! Did you get that from Crocus book for a dime from the magic company? You got one of those tin things in your mouth? I won't tell you unless you help me dig. Okay, Swell, give me the shovel. And you gotta dig fast, like this. Boy, you think she was right under our feet. Oh, you're wonderful, Maggie. Hey, what's the screaming woman's name? Have you made up a name for her yet? Oh, sure. Her name is Shirley Miller, and she's a rich old lady, 160 years old, and she was buried by a crook named Spike. Come on, Dippy, dig! Well, I'm sorry, folks. We 
We got a call that Mrs. Kelly was buried alive in some empty lot. What? It sounded like some kid calling, but we had to make sure. We always checked. Well, I can't understand. Kids, those blasted kids! If I ever catch them, I'll break their necks. Maggie, he's a... Killing telephones, my dad I'll get a licking. What'll we do about the screaming woman? Oh, to heck with her. I'm not going near that lot again. Wait a minute, Dippy. I know why he didn't hear the screams. Kelly's sort of deaf. Mama says he's hard of hearing. Well, he heard us, didn't he? He heard the cop. He reads people's lips. But he couldn't hear the screaming woman because he couldn't see her. Dippy, come on. We gotta go dig some more. No, sir. We got to. We're in a pack of trouble because of your old Donald screaming woman. I'm not gonna get in any more trouble. No, sir. So on, Maggie. And he went off and left me all alone. It was dark now and, and Dad would be hunting for me. If he found me, I'd get a look and be put to bed and then nobody would help the screaming woman at all. There was only one last thing to do, to go all over the neighborhood from house to house and find out who was missing. So I, I rang bells and, and knocked, but, but everybody was home, and I was about to give up when I came to the Nessus house. The house was quiet, like nobody was home, and I saw a dim, spooky light inside somewhere, so I just kept knocking and knocking and knocking. What do you want? Uh, uh, uh nothing, Mr. Nesbitt. I want to see Mrs. Nesbitt. She's not here. She's going to the store. Oh. Uh, then she ought to be back pretty quick. I'll come in and wait. Hey, 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 hey. Wait a minute. I'll just sit down here and wait. I sure like a rocking chair. Uh, don't mind me. Go right ahead doing whatever you were doing, Mr. Nesbitt. I wasn't doing anything. Oh. It looks like you were packing or something with all those boxes and trunks around. Going away? No. Mrs. Nesbitt's been sorting things out, getting rid of a lot of stuff. Oh. Burning it up in the fireplace. Oh, yeah. That's right. Dad always burns our junk out in the alley. Lost smells awful when it burns. I think... Uh, that... Look, kid. Uh, Helen may have gone on from the store to visit a friend. Well, if she doesn't come soon, I'll leave. Uh, yeah, and I'll tell her you were here. Uh, what did you want to see her about? Oh, nothing much. Hey... That's too bad. What? I guess you lost the key to that box. You had to break the lock. It, uh, was, uh, broken already. I bet your folks don't know where you are, kid. No, sir. They think I'm in bed. What friend did Mrs. Nesbitt go visit? I don't know. Uh, I mean, uh, look, kid, I, I ought to tell you. She won't be back tonight. Oh? Uh, no. Uh, she went to the store, like I said, but... She was going from there over to Beechwood to visit her mother uh, on the bus. She'll be gone two or three days. Oh, that's a shame. Why? Mama was expecting Mrs. Nesbitt to come over tomorrow. Maybe just so. Uh, you uh, better not tell your mother. You see, it's a, a, a kind of a secret about Helen going away. She uh, doesn't want people to know for a while. Oh. <laughs> you know how to keep a secret, kid. I guess so. I'll I'll give you something for not telling. I'll I'll give you a reward now. Uh, let's see here. Uh, all right. 
Uh, here's something for a kid. A doll. A doll? Yeah. Uh, Helen was going to give it to you. I heard her say when she was sorting this stuff. Uh, I'll give this to the little Leary girl. That's funny. Mrs. Nesbitt always called me Margaret. Uh, uh, well, uh, sure. Uh, uh, that's what she said. Uh, Margaret. Yeah, you see? It's quite a doll. Old-fashioned. It's made of leather and... Uh, uh, the face is China or something. You see? Uh-huh. Thank you, Mr. Nesbitt. It's a reward for not saying anything about Helen being gone, you understand? Now, now, now come on. Now, I'll step on the porch light. Um, Mr. Nesbitt, I saw your dump truck in the lot this morning. Well, what do you mean? Were you in the lot this morning? Um, no. No, I was home. I looked out the window. Yeah. Please, Mr. Nesbitt, let go of my arm. Are you out there today, answer me. Don't. That hurts. I wasn't playing. It's no fun now with the fort covered up and... The fort? What's that? Nothing. Nothing, Mr. Nesbitt. Tell me what you're talking about. Nothing, nothing but that old concrete pipe. You know something. That's why you came here. You've been snooping around that lot and you found out something. What do you know? I, I don't know anything. Let me go. Mr. Nesbitt, if you don't let me go. Hey, come back. Come back, kid. I'll give you something else. I'll give you something else. Come back here. Come back. Yelled because I kicked him and, and bit his hand. Then I ran, but I let him run after me. It, it, it was dark and quiet and, and scary on the street, and, and more scary out there in the lot. I ran straight across the place where I'd heard the screaming, and it was so quiet. And all of a sudden, there was a man in the lot, right in front of me. Margaret, Margaret, stop. Oh, Dad. Margaret, where have you been? Do you have any idea how your mama's worried? Do you know how late it is? Dad, Dad, he's after me. We've been up Mr. and down Nesbitt. alleys and clear down to Clark Street. I was about to call the police. The screaming woman. It's Mrs. Nesbitt who's down there. I'm going to give you a good licking. Mr. Nesbitt killed her and now he wants to kill I've me. I've had all of this idiotic talk I can stand. It's true. He said she's gone away and, and he was running her things. You've got to believe. Margaret, that's enough. Now stop it right now. What have you got there? Where did you get that doll? Mr. Nesbitt. Why, I... Gave it to her, Leary. <laughs> Kid stopped by the house, and I remembered Helen said she wanted to throw it away. Helen said to throw it away. He's lying, Dad. He gave it to me so I wouldn't tell about her. It was locked up in a box. He didn't have a key. He broke it open. <laughs> She's a high-strung kid, Leary. All the stuff she was telling me. He's lying, Dad. Why are you lying, Charlie? Lying? Or how do you get that? Helen was going to give it to Margaret on her birthday. She told me so. It was a present I gave her a long time ago. She wouldn't have thrown it away any more than I'd throw away the paperweight she gave me. Why are you lying, Charlie? I'm not. Don't look at me like that, Leary. As God is my witness. It's her, Dad. It's the screaming woman. As God is your witness. No! Leary! No! No! Please, Margaret, run to the house, phone the police, and tell them to hurry. Tell them we've got to dig. Sheena's Jungle Room and Midnight Mutations have been bringing you suspense. And this week, brought to you by our annual Black Friday sale. The first 100 customers will receive, free of charge, a designer tote bag 
so collectible itself that you will now have to fight off the crowds again to avoid having it stolen from you. Because it can fetch a pretty penny on the resale market these days. And, hey, it's not our fault that the next 100 customers are given baseball bats, too. It's just our way of saying, Welcome to our annual Black Friday sale. Now, let's return to the thrilling conclusion of Suspense. down there digging her up. Hey, swell! Hot dog! And you know what else, Skippy? Dan covered our fort again. And now we'll be able to get the kids and play in it tomorrow. Suspense. In which Sherry Jackson starred in The Screaming Woman by Ray Bradbury. Suspense is produced and transcribed by Anthony Ellis. Adaptation was by Sylvia Richards. The music was composed by Lucian Marwick and conducted by Wilbur Hatch. Featured in the cast were Paula Winslow, John Daner, Richard Beals, Howard McNear, Joe Cranston, Herb Butterfield, and Eve McVeigh. Join the FBI in Peace and War Wednesday nights on the CBS Radio Network. See you again next week. Until then, be seeing you. Mm-hmm.